Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. This episode is a live session from day three of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023. And it's called India, Empire and the First World War. Santanu Das and Navtej Sarna in conversation with David Olusoga. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you all for coming today. In 1914, within just two days of Britain's declaration of war, the British War Cabinet met and they made a critical and historic decision. They, de they decided to deploy the British Army of India into what was to become the First World War. At first, the idea was that they were going to defend and protect the Suez Canal. At the time they got to the Suez Canal, that was a fantasy. They were headed to France and Belgium. By August, they were in Marseille. By October, they were in the fields around the tiny hamlets of Belgium and northern France, facing the German army. But that decision was made for simple arithmetic reasons. The British Expeditionary Force of 1914 was 70,000 strong. The German army was 1.9 million strong. The Austro-Hungarian army was almost half a million. But Britain, as it had done since the days of the East India Company, had another army, the British Army of India, which stood at 240,000 men, 150,000 of them, able to be deployed immediately. What was different about 1914 to all the many other deployments of the British Army of India is that they were to fight in Europe against a white European enemy. And that was the beginning of four years of suffering, of heroicism at times, of cross-cultural conflict, all shaped by the logic of race and empire, the urgency of military situations. And that is what we're here to discuss today with my fellow panelists. I'd like to begin by trying to make sense of this moment by thinking about what it was like to be one of those soldiers who had been sent across the oceans, who finds themselves in France and Belgium in the last months of 1914, with all of the, the insanity of the First World War to make sense of and this cross-cultural moment to navigate. Yes, it is an extraordinary moment because in 1914, for the first time, the Indians were allowed to fight in the Western Front and give up their kind of lives. And I thought it's a dizzying moment because on one hand, for the first time, they go to Europe. And they said that the European races, they're the most beautiful race in the whole world. And the French, they're the most beautiful people. Every house, they say, is like paradise. So on one hand, there is that ecstatic encounter with Europe. On the other hand, they're transported in red London buses, as you know, David, and shoved straight into the trenches. This is kind of October. And they face the horror of warfare. And the letters, they immediately start writing and they fall back on what they know on images of nature, like there is conflagration all around, or we are like grains cooked in a pot. So it's quite heartbreaking. So it's the letters that are the main sources of our information. Navtej, could you paint a picture of this experience and this moment? I think 
I think I can do no better since Shantanu mentioned letters. I have a little uh, few lines here on the letters. Uh, and this is uh, based on a fictional protagonist in my book uh, who's, a, who's a sepoy exactly sent as, as David mentioned. He's just recruited because he's a good wrestler uh, from a village and is sent. And then, of course, they reach the land of fairies, as they said, because they were absolutely fascinated by the French women in particular who, who lined the streets uh, and met them and gave them cigarettes and food, etc. So the letters that the soldiers had sent home then were still untouched by the horror of war. They talked of the crossing of the dark waters to a land of beauty and of how happy they were and why no one should worry about them. And even if they were to die, then they should be remembered in the nicest way as ones who did their race, regiment and religion proud and how faithful they were in discharging their duty towards the king, the kind king who sat in Vilayat. And of the food they got, chapatis rolled and made on flat metal tawas, heated on wood fires, burning in pits in the earth, and hot dal cooked in cauldrons by the langri, generously spiced with ginger, garlic, and chilies, followed by sweet bits of gourd. There was meat too, and everybody could eat without breaking faith, because the British officers of the Jalandhar Brigade understood them so well. They had set up separate slaughtering stations where the goats were killed in different ways. Halal for the Muslim and Jhatka for those of the Sikhs and Hindus who ate meat. Now all this would change as the war progressed. Uh, but this was the early romance of arrival in a new land, of caring officers, uh, uh, an observation of uh, cultural practices because they still had officers who went with them, British officers who spoke Hindustani and who understood their men. Much of this would change as the months went on. I think that that's a reflection of the nature of this army, an army that had been reformulated after the great rebellion of 57-58. Can you give me a picture of how this, how this army operated, how the British officers and the Indian soldiers uh, worked together, but also how these cultural and religious sensitivities had been built into this army. As you describe, the food being prepared with great knowledge and sensitivity. This is an army that is the result, as it were, of the lessons of the uh, Indian army from the British point of view. Yeah. Absolutely, it's completely strategic because they didn't want a repeat of 1857. And though there was a close bond between officers and some of these Indian sepoys, as Navdet said, there was a very strict hierarchy, almost apartheid. Like I have, you know, researched on this for 10 years. I haven't, I have come across lots of accounts of Indians risking their lives and getting killed to save their officers. But I have not come across a single letter where a British officer ever risked his life. So I think we need to have those parameters clear. And also the army, of course, there were bits of izzat, bits of social aspiration. But the main underpinning was economic incentive. The army was a source of livelihood. So across the 19th century, hundreds of thousands of these Indians, they were going to different kind of parts of the world as colonial troops 
because that was kind of that was their kind of main source of income. But this was different because Nashtev, this is the use of the Indian Army deployed yes. around the world by the Royal Navy to put out uh, rebellions and uh, acts yes. of resistance around the empire had been strictly controlled. They were never yes. to fight white Europeans. In the urgency of 1914, exactly. that goes out the window. Yes. Exactly, Absolutely. because earlier the Indians had been sent abroad. It's not that the first, yes, in such numbers they had never been abroad, mm. but they had gone to Abyssinia. The Boxer Rebellion. They had gone to the Boxer Rebellion. They had gone to Afghanistan. But this was the first time that it was, you know, the colonized against the white races. And that became a very important uh, uh, factor because, I mean, there was a feeling that are, are the white men even human as you and me? Do they bleed when they are cut? Or do they, do they you know, can, can an Indian's bullet, uh, uh, you know, kill a white man because you know, there, there are questions that come in these letters that, uh, you know, the Frenchman looks much the same as an Englishman, the German looks much the same as an Englishman, then why are we fighting on behalf of one white man against other white men? So, they, you know, as they went into this war, uh, one of the things that, that came out of it was a, a, a political awakening. Uh, um, you know, and uh, 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 knowledge that the white man was not invincible. We, we, we've mentioned twice the, the letters. Um, yeah. It's probably good to explain, uh, if you could, yeah, you, just what a remarkable resource, um, in some ways accidentally bequeathed to historians, the, the, for reasons that are to do with the war and control and divide and rule. Tell us about the letters of the Indian Army. Yes, we have this extraordinary collection of letters because first we are talking about a largely non-literate army but once they went to France they would dictate many of these letters to scribes who'd write them, jot them down and then they were sent to the colonial censors who'd extract bits of it in order to police the morale of the troops and it's this extracts which are now preserved in the British Library. And we have kind of hundreds of these letters and they are the main sources. And the other thing, and we can come to that later, kind of around 10 years back, kind of we discovered this extraordinary uh, archive of sound recordings in Germany. These were by Indian prisoners of war and the Royal Prussian kind of commission, they recorded Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, along with Senegalese, Irish, English people. And they are the first voice recordings that we have of Indian troops. And um, Chantanu has collated some images and a sound recording for this session that we're going to start going through in, in, in a moment. Just one more question um, before we do. You mentioned that, of course, the Indian Army exists on the Western Front and in other theatres of war alongside people from other empires. The First World War, very often imagined as a European war, is truly a war of empires. Uh, Nashtar, could you tell me about this, this coming together? What, what did it mean for the Indian soldier to encounter, for example, um, soldiers from the British Caribbean or French soldiers from Senegal? Well, I, I presume there was a kind of hierarchy of racism uh, and and you know while the while the Indian soldier was 
the subject of racism at the hands of the white man, he was probably racist uh, towards the black man uh, fighting with him. So there was this hierarchy of uh, racism which, which, we have, which we have to uh, uh, face up to. And so, as you see in the letters, again it comes out, most of them are very insular. You know, they, there's, there's, very, there's virtually no reference uh, to other uh, people of uh, color that you see in these letters. It's all the guys from the same village hanging together or the same regiment hanging together and, and, and writing that. So while perhaps if you're from a larger point of view of the empire and the, and the ruled, there was this divide, but I think there were internal divides amongst the ruled. Yes, and it's also the way the British organized their army uh, in contrast to the French army, because the French regiments, they were mixed, yeah. whereas the Indian army wasn't mixed. Yeah. So the Indians were kept completely segregated. I don't even know whether they would have met, you know, Chinese laborers. There were 140,000 Chinese laborers, kind of 500,000 kind of French colonial troops, kind of Senegalese. Kind of, and so they were kept completely segmented. So on one hand, we talk about it as this kind of coming together of different races, but the reality on ground would have been very different. Yeah. And with the British, again, there is a strict hierarchy. It's only Indians who were allowed to fight on the Western Front, but not the Maoris from New Zealand or the Caribbeans or, for example, the Aboriginal Australians. And what is very sad is that the Indians loved this idea. They almost kind of relish that yeah. they are somewhat superior to the other races. And I think we need to acknowledge that as well. And the kind of jobs that were given to the others yeah. were, you know, porters and digging trenches, etc. They were not always the cavalry or the infantry. And just one minor distinction before we go on to the others. You know, the Indian Army was, yes, there was a Brit proper Indian Army. Then there were the people who were recruited in thousands for the war. And then there were the princely armies, uh, you know, which, which were fighting sort of along with them. And in some theatres, they were far more active, for instance, in Palestine, you know, the liberation of Haifa. Uh, these were the Lancers, the, you know, the princely. So there were these various uh, sort of solos uh, which, which made this large Indian contribution of 1.3 million people. Wonderful. Chantana, should we look at some of the images that you've been yes, collecting now for the us? Technology kind of now we are, we are dependent on the technology at this moment. Can How we do see? I hit some? How do I? Yes, I think it's here. So yeah. Is that on the screen? Yes. Yes, it's on the screen. Wait, talk us through this, please. How do I... you, you talk. It's not changing. We're trying to change the next slide. Next Is that one, possible? Next slide. Point it down. I think we're a bit. It's always the technology always that goes the wrong. Technology. <laughs> it's not changing. Or am ah, I here we go. Ah, yes. So this is, as I said, this is a kind of non-literate. This is a non-literate army, and this is kind of so striking that you see the hierarchies of kind of race almost visually depicted because an Indian unable to write is giving his thumb impression and they would get 11 rupees at the end of the month and that was absolutely crucial. And um, Navtej, would you yeah. like to... You read it out in comment? English first? Absolutely. So the war came kind of, as um, Navtej mentioned, kind of 1.4 million men were recruited 
and the majority of them were from Punjab. And as I said, it's a non-literate population, but it's a deeply literary one. There's the, they come from this very rich oral culture. So the war came to Punjab as rumor, as gossip, as visual images, and as songs. So here we have a recruiting song, and I'll just read it out in English, and then Naftej can give the original. So get enlisted, the recruits who stand out there. Here you get old shoes, there you'll get full boots, get enlisted. Here you get torn rags, there you will get suits, get enlisted. But once they reach, the reality was very different. Well, yes, uh, you know, the recruitment process in the Punjab villages was very uh, varied. You see that scene there. Uh, all sorts of people were used for recruitment, the religious leaders, the singers, uh, the wrestlers, all sorts of things. And the original of this, this is one of the most popular recruitment songs. So, so those of you who understand Punjabi, it was written by a man called Bhai Chela Patialewala. And it was on those early gramophone machines. And he says, Parti ho jave, bahar khade rangroot, ethe khame suki hoi roti, othe khame fruit, ethe paame phate hoi lire, othe paame suit, ethe paame tutti hoi juti, othe paame boot. Uh, you know. So the lure of the uniform, the lure of the brass buttons, the lure of the 11 rupees uh, a month, because, you know, these were people, Punjab was one of the most uh, well-to-do provinces, but it was also the most heavily indebted. So uh, there was the pressure of money lenders. So if you got a job with 11 rupees, plus it added to your izzat of the com. Uh, then you went and and that's uh, you know and these kind of recruitment uh, tactics were employed absolutely and i think there is often this divide like some people say that they were driven by izzat there is this other camp thing they are just mercenaries we should explain izzat for those who oh izzat kind of you know i think most honor. people honor basically honor prestige <laughs> and on the other hand some people would say that they were completely mercenaries and I think both are quite reductive categories. I think it's much more complex and different emotions were, and motives were fused and confused, like social aspiration, family tradition, village tradition, izzat, and money. So I think we need to factor- And land. And land, yes, that money, uh, they yeah. get grants, and they got huge amount of land grants at the end of the war. And, but at the same time, there were other voices also, and this is where I wanted to bring in the women. Yeah. And some of the most heartbreaking testimonies come from women who sing these songs. Like they say that take the bachelors to war, don't take our husbands. Or another song is train go slowly. Oh, train go slowly because my husband is going to Basra. Hmm. And the first critique of the war, it doesn't come from Gandhi or any of the politicians, but comes from this hapless non-literate women in Punjab. And on the left, there is a, I think it would be the pain, uh, yes, uh, painting, sorry, we just moved, and we have visual depictions. And since it's a non-literate population, we need to go beyond conventional archives to objects, images, songs, in order to understand this world. 
This is an image from the other end of that journey across the oceans. This is the Indian divisions arriving in Marseille in um, August, um, end of August, early September 1914. I mean, this was a moment when the Indian armies encountered Europeans, as it is often uh, described in the newspapers as the moment Europeans gazed at this Indian army. To invert that, what do the letters, what do we know about uh, the, the, that experience from the other way around? I will just say one, just one hilarious episode. This is actually comes from a diary. And so there's this kind of, and the first kind of French of men, they were this kind of tall, kind of handsome kind of men from Punjab. And they come out of the ships, walk down Marseille, and one woman comes to this kind of Sikh warrior and says, oh my God, you have grown this long beard because you have been in the ship for so long. Can I shave off your beard as a little gesture? So there are, or for example, when the Gurkhas come, they need new underpants. So they are sent to the market, but the underpants are too big. So then another group is sent to buy safety pins so that they can pin their underpants. So there are this, all these kind of glorious kind of moments as well. And they were, of course, full of admiration for what they saw. At the same time, when they camped outside Paris, uh, you know, and uh, the soldiers would wash their long hair or comb their hair or play their traditional musical instruments, the French men, women, children would all crowd around and look, look with complete awe. Uh, at these, and some of this, I don't know if you have that have uh, picture. And, and, you know, and there was this whole uh, very positive interaction to begin with. There is striking from some of the writing in 1914 of this moment of encounter that there are, there's a, a writer that Shantanu and I are very fond of, Bibikov, who writes without, this is a woman writing in 1914, without the racial language and the racial categories, a real sense of encounter and enchantment with the Indian army. So there are those who are carried away by this moment. Absolutely, and I think there's a certain naivety. Of course there is Orientalism, but you write about that, David, very well. There is a certain sweetness and a naivety. This Bibikov, she's completely swept off her feet. And there are painters who get to the Indian camp in order to paint these Indians. We have sketches, we have portraits, we have paintings, and this is the first time that kind of working class Indians are being kind of painted. Sorry, this has a mind of its own. And so. there's, there's, there's a, also a social awakening amongst the soldiers besides the political awakening. They see uh, unveiled women being, mingling in the streets and they write back about it. And they, they see how people are spending their money on the... And they say, we waste too much money on rituals. We waste too much money on weddings and funerals. We have to spend the money on education. So there is a, you know, a social awakening which accompanies their exposure abroad. Absolutely. And the other thing is dignity of labor. Mm. They say even here, the sweepers, they're well-dressed. They take pride in their kind of job. And the other thing, as you said, female education, and many of these men then write back home saying that we are sending money. Can you also educate our daughters and not just the sons? I don't know how much that was carried on after the war, but this happens. But can we change the, uh, uh, the positive picture to the negative, negative. one? Well, we, have, we have to get to the fact of what, <laughs> exactly. what they are there to oh, do God, on the West France. I was about, I was just... Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. How do you go back? Uh, it's a one-way one street. Yeah. It, no, it's just even without me touching. It's just okay. I will focus on this. I hope it stays. I will just. Oh God. 
<laughs> yes, so Here this one, it's, a, it's some glasses that I came across in a tiny kind of house in Chandanagar near Calcutta. And these glasses belong to this kind of Indian man, kind of Jogen Sen, who was killed in 1915. And they were sent to his kind of widowed mother. And I often think kind of the feelings of this mother, all that remains is this kind of bloodstained glasses. And he was in the West Yorkshire Regiment. And one of his colleagues said that he was the best educated person, but he wasn't promoted because he was Indian. So this is the other side. And the next one, if I manage to... This is quite remarkable, Nafsij. I think you'll be very interested. On the left, uh, on the, in the diary page, this is a page from the diary of an Australian private where a Punjabi soldier, Pakka Singh, had signed his name in three languages, Gurmukhi, Hindi, and English, and suddenly you realize how kind of the Muslim and the Hindu cultures, they coexisted. This is kind of pre-partition. I came across this in the Australian kind of war memorial in Canberra. And on the right, and I think we often think of a homogeneous Indian experience. That is completely wrong. It was very specific, very nuanced. Different people have different experiences. On the right, this is a very rare thing because it belonged to a laborer. We can recover the soldier, and this is a laborer who had found this German helmet and had put two horns. And this is in Oxford. And the next one, it's I an think all of artifact. us... It, it's got extraordinary. Do you recognize yes. this, Naftej? This is a lovely letter written, written by a, a young girl to, uh, to her father. I don't know if you can read it, if it's, it's quite obvious. But obviously, the mother can't write. Uh, the daughter has... Uh, you know, perhaps learned she to She said, write. I'm learning in She's order to learning. write to, in order And to you write see to you. that all the words are joined together, as it used to be in uh, handwritten uh, Gurmukhi uh, at that time. And she basically, it's a very plaintive letter. She says, you know, we are all right, but without you, we are, we are as good as dead. So just come back. And yeah. there, there are many hun hundreds of letters of, uh, of… Not anyone from… This is the, perhaps the only letter from such a young girl. Yeah, yeah this from is, a child, She's yes. 11 years old and we have very few letters, maybe three or four from women. Yeah. And, but what is so, I think, moving is that, you know, often we do historical reconstruction or understanding without emotion and the heart is absolutely central to the letter. And even in the soldiers' letters, they say, our hearts are bleeding, our hearts are breaking. And I think we need that language in order to access the experiences. And I think that takes us on to what's something that's been central in your work and other people have written about the Indian Army in the First World War, is we need to expand what we mean by the archive to try to capture this experience. We have to look at not just letters, but objects and, uh, and other, other bits of material culture. Can you tell me about how we build this history? Yes, I think we need to create our own archive because, of course, there's military history, which is very important. But I wanted to go beyond medals and memorials and dishonors and understand and partly recover the texture of experience. And I think for this, we need to go beyond conventional archives into rumor, gossip, objects, songs, because I think we need to remember that amnesia is not absence. Uh, once one starts digging in, so I started this, I think, in around 2010 or eight. Uh, and I'll just tell one story. This was when I had found an uh, important letter in the archives in Delhi, and I was just going back to 
kind of going back to London, kind of I was kind of driving to the airport, I was being driven, I was in this taxi and the taxi driver asked me, so why are you here? And I said, what would he understand about my research? But he was quite insistent. He said, what do you work on? I said, India and the First World War. And he said, my great-grandfather was in the First World War in Mesopotamia. And in our house, there's a whole trunk full of objects and letters. And I think this is how memory often functions in India. It's there, but not on the surface. I wonder whether you had similar... <laughs> No, I, I, I haven't had any f uh, first-hand experience of it. But, you know, it is absolutely uh, true. For instance, you find references from in other countries that, you know, we used, for instance, in uh, present-day Israel. Uh, I, I met families, I mean, uh, Arab families who, 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 who did say that, you know, my father used to say that he met Indian soldiers here. Uh, you know, so the Indian soldiers walking around Jerusalem with Allenby's forces uh, were, ve were very popular figures. Uh, for instance, and, and you know, they, they performed a, political, a particular role, if I can mention this in Jerusalem, because you know the Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount, uh, which was open only to Muslims because it was the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they needed somebody to guard the entrances. So who better than Indian Muslim soldiers? So they used to guard the entrance to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, you know, so there are stories which you come through families and uh, even in countries uh, which are not India, but where these soldiers have, have served. Mm. Like this is in a, from my own family. Yeah. Moninonath Das, kind of one of my kind of great uncles, he served as a doctor in Mesopotamia. And he, in fact, even got the military cross. And they had been in the family wardrobe for almost 100 years. And he, in fact, got a German shell case and carried it back home. And this is how memory functions. Yeah. Shall we go to Mir Must or whenever? But just, uh, just uh, do you want to talk? You know, actually, this, all the nice things we've said lasted for about a year or a few months. months. Because the winter that came, the soldiers were not prepared for. They had new weapons. They had virtually, they weren't, they weren't equipped properly. They couldn't handle the snow, the trenches, the trench rats, the cold. And so they, in a year or so, they were moved to Mesopotamia or Egypt and, and, and other places. And that's when the tone of the letters changes. The letters starts telling you about the horrors of war. They say, they say, for instance, there's one letter which says, which I quoted in my book, which says, this is not a war, this is the end of the world. And, you know, here strange things happen. You know, there's Zeppelin ships and they can't handle that. They don't, they can't handle the way the sniper bullets come. They're just simply not trained, not prepared for it. And that's when the letters change and they start telling people in the villages, don't recruit, don't join the army. It's no great things happening out here. And then they start trying to find ways and means of malingering, you know. For instance, they keep asking in their uh, letters for a, the bhalva. Bhalva was a little, you know, which is used by dhobis to mark clothes, the indigo, which actually can be used to give your hand a swelling. So they would ask for that so they could get a swelling and then be taken off from the front. Uh, so all sorts of things happen basically and that's when in Punjab, the voluntary recruitment goes down and the conscription starts. And that's where Michael O'Dyer starts his little games, 
of giving quotas to the local revenue officials that you produce so many men from your village, otherwise you got, you're going to get into trouble. So the Tehsildars, the Zeldars are charged with quotas. And that's what, you know, added to the angst which led to the, you know, the oppression against the, I mean, the protests against the Rawal attack, the Jallianwala Bagh, and, and, you know, all those things because of the conscription policies of Michael Odwar. Yes, this was in the last year, the last six yeah. months. Like, women were kidnapped or water, yeah. kind of water for irrigation, it was stopped. So. We have to go to questions in a couple of minutes, but I wondered if we could play the sound recording. Yes. Is that, is that possible? Before we do, could you, could you set yes, it up and explain it, Shantanu? Yeah. So, shall we go? Yeah. Uh, the sound recording. Yeah. Then can we change? Can, this is not working. So, can we have the slide? Yes, this one. Uh, I wanted to play a sound recording, and this kind of was recorded by Mal Singh uh, on kind of 11th December, as you can see, kind of 1916. And he was one of a prisoner of war held in Bunsdorf camp just outside Berlin. And the Royal Prussian Phonographic Commission, they wanted to record this man because since the German imperialists couldn't go to different parts of the world because of the war, they thought that the whole world had come to them. And they usually would ask this man to read a letter, sing a song, or recite a poetry. But Mal Singh is quite unique because he circumvented all that and told his life story. And again, it is the language of the heart. Could could someone click on the sound on that icon? Could we play that yes. recording? Could please? we play the recording? Well, let's just say a little bit more about that recording. As you said, Germany has this army of ethnographers and anthropologists who have been out in the German Empire in Africa and elsewhere up until 1914. Suddenly, Germany loses its empire, but these hundreds of thousands of men from all over the world are literally in German prison of war camps, and they, they pounce on them. And to hear a voice like that, he speaks... People like you never leave us their books. Absolutely. We don't, we don't have sound recordings of peasants who joined the British Army with no education. It's an astonishing voice from another world. Absolutely. And the other thing is that, you know, we often try to downplay the agency in kind of academic jargon of the subaltern, whereas here he's turning a colonial experiment into a life testimony. And this man, can I have the next image? There's an image, in fact, of this. Can I have the next slide, please? Uh, so these men, they were made to speak to a funnel, and it's almost eight years after that we get to hear his voice. It's not... Uh, Do you I have the next image? It's not... Can I have the next... Can we have the next image? Because the German... Yes. So, so here you see a voice recording taking place uh, at the at the Wunsdorf camp, and these are kind of a group of Gurkhas, and they were made to read something. But Mal Singh, as I said, was singular because he told his life story and you know i'd worked on kind of british and french kind of literature of the first world war this is the most haunting testimony i've come across and they lay in the archives for almost a century for yes almost a century in this wax cylinders mm. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.